The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Micah 7, 18-20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, welcome to our visitors. Uh, I forgot, didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Stacy Croft, and I'm the lead pastor here. And welcome if you're visiting with us uh, from either out of town or from somewhere else in town, and, or if you're visiting here for the first time this morning. Uh, glad you're with us. Uh, I'd love to grab some time with you, coffee, lunch, get to know you, and uh, hear your story, help you plug in further, further into the life of our church. Um, I was hearing a... a podcast some time ago, I remember it was uh, pretty old, um, and it was talking about it was a, uh, This American Life kind of thing, and um, it was talking about the, the death of rom-coms, uh, in other words, the death of romantic comedies, and uh, this was like, we're talking like five, six years ago, well now there's like all this resurgence of articles and people talking about it, because there, there, there's been a couple attempts to bring a couple of that genre back. And if you're unfamiliar with that genre, that movie genre, it was that this big push, particularly in the 80s and 90s, was kind of the sweet spot where uh, movies like uh, When Harry Met Sally, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, um, You've Got Mail, all those classics, those three in particular, you had Meg Ryan, you know, uh, and <laughs> killing it. And uh, it was kind of like what Marvel movies are now. Uh, it, was, it dominated all the box office, and people loved them. But recently, there's been this just death of it, and people just haven't watched it until uh, the last, like, we're talking last six months, maybe, maybe a year, um, where they've been trying to have this pushback on it, and there's a slew of articles on the desire to have the rom-com come back from the grave, (laughs) so to speak. And I thought it was really interesting because I always enjoyed those, uh, um, those movies. And then, you know, they kind of hit this pattern and formula. And it was kind of like people were like, uh, is it kind of old? Is it used? Well, I read an article. You can read a million different ones that say similar to what I'm going to read. I found this one in the uh, Atlantic uh, that said this. And I thought this was really interesting. Listen to what they say. A rom-com is about the same There are a few exceptions where the people you think are going to get together, maybe don't, maybe there's a few variations here or there, but for the most part, you know what's going to happen. Where the people you think are going to get together are going to get together. And there's a deep comfort and security in the formula. You can trust it. You won't be brokenhearted at the end. And there's something lovely about that. And as I read this, it was uh, this article, particularly this one, said, we kind of hope they come back pretty strong because in our cultural moment, uh, we would love to have just some continuous, like, let's just get together. <laughs> you know, is there a happy ending? 
does this formula work? Um, you know, we, we've been studying the book of Micah, the prophet, and um, we're finishing today this book. And in our church, we, we go through either a, a passage or typically through a whole book of the Bible uh, where we walk through it together. And we've walked through now, this is the seventh chapter and last chapter of the book of Micah, which is a minor prophet and not minor in terms of, uh, of its importance, but length or size. They're major and minor prophets. But one of the things that's a marker about all the prophets, whether it be a major or minor prophet, you know, maybe you've heard of prophets before like Isaiah, we read typically at Advent or Christmas, uh, or Hosea is a minor prophet, or Jonah, you may have heard Jonah's name. These books have a similar flow to them. And they typically begin with the people of God where the prophets are like lawyers and they're kind of saying, hey, the people of God, you've lost your way. You have decided to drift away in your relationship with the Lord. And secondly, then comes uh, this type of judgment of, hey, because you've decided to do this, there's going to be consequences and judgment upon the way you've decided to, to, to live in your relationship towards me. And then you see that judgment come. And then finally, though, what's amazing about every prophet, no matter what, it always ends with God's steadfast love. The formula is the same. It always ends the same. How is he going to love us? Not how is he just going to slam us. How is he going to love us? And I think for us, that's a really important question to ask. Because, I, you know, we're in a church. I'm, I'm preaching from a passage in the Bible. Maybe you would expect, especially if you're coming into church again for the first time, maybe you're burned, bored, cynical of what church is, that word love gets thrown around a lot, particularly when it's connected to God and what you may hear or see in other terms. But I would submit to you that what we're seeing here should, should be a formula that hits us to the core. It's not just a rote rudimentary thing. If it really is, as it begins here, who is a God like you, which is interesting that this is how Micah finishes his book. Because his name actually means who is like God. This could be read as a poem or a song, even as we read in our confession, God's song over us. What is the song that we sing? Who is like God? Who is like him in the way that he loves us and the way that he cares for us? A book that was written from Micah in the 8th century BC, specifically to a time and place. And we're gonna, we, we need, I wanna say, even as we end this series, that it is so important that we look at this. First, how did it land to the original hearers? What did this mean for them? Because we can't jump quickly to us and just the application, but what did it mean for them? And then, what does it mean for us? So we're gonna ask one question this morning, one point. How does God love us? How does God love us? And if you're following along and you may like a real neat, super clean outline, you may be frustrated this morning. So just enjoy that. You get one point. Some of you are like, yes. You know, it begins here. It says, who is like you, God, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, verse 18, for the remnant of his inheritance? And then it begins to use a number of words to describe who God is like. You know, it's a comparison question. Who is like you, God? Who is it like you? 
It's interesting, it begins this way, and there's a number of like, I don't know if you're a poetical person, but, and I always enjoyed William Shakespeare, but his moments of, in his sonnets over and over, he was constantly trying to say, what is love like? Or what is my beauty like? Or what is this love of mine like? It's like a summer. It's like a rain. It's like, you know, the sonnets begin to draw out and try and compare, is there anything that we can understand what this is like? And that's what this song goes to. It's trying to help us, again, understand this isn't a rote formula, but to get to the core of us, who is like God in the way that he loves us? And it brings out a couple of things. First is uh, iniquity. Second is um, <clears throat> is uh, transgression, and third is sin. Three kind of ways that, and I, I think it's important to define our terms here, because when we think about what, what is iniquity and transgression, we don't really use those words. We may talk about sin, but these words are really important for us to know, like, how does God actually care for us? What does he love us in? Iniquity is a word that means to twist or warp. It was a, it was a word to talk about how we, how we are warped in the way that we approach this world, and we warp it to ourselves. St. Augustine, who was a theologian, said that our hearts are curved back in on themselves. And yet it's saying to us that God pardons our iniquity, that he pardons that. He begins to shape us and, and take our hearts and not leave them warped, but to bend them back the way they should. Transgression is a willful rebellion. It's, it's, a, it's a moral boundary. Think of the word even. It's a transgress. To transgress, it's to cross a line. There's the line, and you kind of just step over it. <laughs> and many of us may be kind of like those people that were like, uh, yeah, I'll just do this. Some of us do it quietly. And we know that that divided line is right there. And yet we want to cross. Why do we cross it? <laughs> Because when we can cross it, that means we can shape it to ourselves. And yet, God is saying here, passes over transgression. And then finally, sin. What is sin? It's a hard word to translate. When you look at these words, and I, I, <laughs> I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I did dive back into my Hebrew and unpacked a lot of my books again to try and really mine out some of this language, especially, and it's a really hard word to translate. But for kind of what we even saw with confession, it's a word that means missing the mark. And it doesn't just mean missing it like, oh, I just fell short. I just don't, I wish I was perfect. Well, yeah, it's not just the ways that you don't do things. It's also the ways that we do live and try and live out in our own strength. And to try and do it in self-righteousness that we need to be forgiven. So these three things God addresses, but with how he does is he begins it. Who is like you, God? Pardoning iniquity. And that is an incredibly important word. It actually is the same word for forgiveness, and it's a word that means to lift off. It means that God is actually the only, who is the only one, who is like you, God, that can actually lift off the way that we have become warped and bent, the way we are pressed in and crushed and when you first think of that, it's, it's not just a, a lift off emotionally, it's a lift off in reality. I don't know if you remember the great book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where it was a, talked about a, an allegory of a person named Christian who carried a backpack. And 
the backpack was to try and get to the celestial city, which was heaven, and they ha- carried this backpack, the backpack representing sin and shame and, and guilt, and those things of trying to relieve themselves. The most modern version of this that we know, and is, is, this is where he got it from, J.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. The, the whole point of The Lord of the Rings and, and this hobbit who has this ring is, is not a quest, it's actually an anti-quest. If you think about it, what, what, what is he trying to do? He's trying to get to Mount Doom to take the ring and cast it in. But the whole time you see this oppression, what both... John Bunyan and J.R.R. Tolkien are trying to express that the ring and, and the backpack are, are actualities. They're realities that we carry. They're things that press down on us, so much so that in the film, I'm sure many of you be way easier sometimes to watch that than the books that, that are super thick, but in the same way, it gives you this idea of around his neck, this small golden ring has such a weight that the entire Books and movies are about how this small hobbit can carry such a burden. And it begins to dig and cut into his neck with such force, and yet it is such a small thing. That is the reality that God wants us to know about. What does he mean to pardon us? That he loves, that this is what he does. That his arms are strong, Who is like God that can do that? And yet, I am like you, and there are voices that play the same routine over and over in my head of, you can carry this. You can lift this. You're strong enough. In fact, you could probably carry more. The things that we listen to, the the ways that we believe that who is like God? Well, we look to other things to, to tell us that we can handle this appropriately. We can handle it, that we're strong enough to lift it up. I believe it all the time. There are the things that, oh, yeah, yeah, this seems a little out of control. And yet, what, what can I control so I can devise not thinking that, so I can know that I'm still in good favor with God and everybody else? But yet, God's arms are strong enough, and he desires to lift that off of you. I think sometimes, and I have to say this, I bet some of us feel like God's design is the opposite. That his desire, who is like God, he wants to push down on you until you say give. But that is not at all what his love is. His love is to lift off. It is actually to like literally uplift the burden off of what we think we can hold, and yet we have this design in us to think that we can do it. I've used this illustration before. I, I have to use it again because it comes in my head. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched World's Strongest Man. It is a, it is a ESPN deal where these guys from all over the world, they're all named like Magnus Ver Magnuson, and these like Latin names that mean they're giants, and they literally can almost not get their hands together like this because they're so huge. And when they come together, it's not like CrossFit, like how many reps of this can you do? No, they put like cars on either side and they squat them. Like that's the kind of crazy stuff they do. 
And some of the best versions are the old, you know, 70 version where these guys are huge, and yet they have the old, like, tiny shorts. You remember those? And the tank tops with, like, and they still had the fro hair, you know? And they do these, these things. You just think, God, that's wild. Well, of course, there's one race where I'm watching it. I just can't not watch it. I mean, it's, like, amazing. They line up to do a 50-yard dash, of course, with a refrigerator on their back. I mean, why wouldn't you? And so they latch this thing to them, and all of a sudden they go off the track, and they're sprinting down and, you know, sprinting as much as you can. All of a sudden, the British announcer says, oh, oh, no, something's happening. And, and one of the guys took a step, and his knee just went, the other way. But it's okay, because he had his knee wrapped, so that, you know, it was just hanging there, so he could carry it with him. So he kept going. And the announcer was like, he, oh, he's still going. And he's dragging his leg like this as he's running down a track with a refrigerator on his back. Okay, it, doesn't that sound weird? That literally, this is where Micah is going with this language. When the people of God would have heard this from Micah, and this is the end, this is the end of the, the last three verses of the entire prophetic book, wouldn't it have been a balm to their soul from all the oppression that they had been carrying both inward and outward that is a reality to know that God lifts. His relationship to them is not to crush, but to lift. He loves in this way. And I, I have to say this over and over to you. We are such a feeling-oriented culture that we think God's love is simply a feeling. It is more than that. This lifting isn't just an emotional thing, and it's also not in just an intellectual one that you grasp. It is a full reality. My general contractor sent me a bill the other day for $25,000. And I, I, I was like, what? And I, I talked to him about it later, and he goes, oh, no, 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 that's just for you to submit to something. That's not an actual bill. Did, what did you think I felt like in the moment? <laughs> Did I feel, now think about this for a moment. That wasn't just an emotional lift. It was a real, it was a reality. It was a pragmatic one. It dealt with the reality of my every day. Because it was taken off, that was totally lifted off by his arms. And you know what's beautiful about this? Micah would give language that they would understand to make sense of this love. There are three things that he says about that sin, what God does. He first says he passes, he pardons iniquity, that's lifting off. Then in verse 18, passing over transgression. Then in verse 19, it says he will tread on our iniquities underfoot. And finally in 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, on the outset, maybe some of that language would be like, okay, that sounds beautiful. What he's actually hearkening to is to help them know what does this mean? What does he actually do with their sin? What does he, how does he actually love them practically? And he does so by putting language of the same language that was used to describe the Exodus in the Old Testament. That in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, when God brought his people out of Egypt, now if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, they were enslaved for longer than we have been a country, 400 years. Can you imagine the oppression and the life you were born into and all you know 
is being crushed. What lifting off would feel like to be loved and to be seen not only as a thing that makes stuff for someone else, but valued and loved and cherished by the God of the universe. And he says to them, what I'm going to do to your sin is this. I'm gonna pass over your transgression. That would show them that language passing over was the night before they would leave Egypt and were brought out. God said, you're gonna actually sacrifice a lamb and you're gonna put this blood over your doorposts because I'm gonna pass through the camp and those who are not of me will receive the judgment because there's no sacrifice to show. And God would pass over. That's why it's called the Passover. God passed over their doors. Can you imagine being in those homes that evening? Can you imagine going through that, sacrificing, putting literal blood on your doorposts, and sitting in your home in an evening and waiting and thinking, is God really going to pass over my house? The anxiety, the, the thoughts, the questions, the, okay, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. you and yet, he says, he does what he says. He passes over. He sees the blood. He sees the sacrifice. He passes over their transgression. He doesn't stop and say, but wait, you didn't do enough. He passes over. And then he says he treads. He treads their iniquities underfoot. This word is a word that means subdue that he would tread over it. It's, it's the language of, okay, after, right after that event when they led out of Egypt and they went and they were stuck between the Red Sea and the army of Egypt that came after them. And these are not military people. They're thinking, what do we do? We can't subdue, we can't subdue, and this is the language of treading, is subduing an oppressor. How do we subdue our oppressor? We, we don't have chariots. We don't have military might. And here they are stuck in the whole languages of treading. What did God do to protect and take care by subduing their enemies? This is what he does to the oppressors both inside us and outside. That God treads over the iniquities underfoot. That he subdues the oppression that you constantly know is a reality. He not only lifts off, he not only passes over, but he... He subdues it. And then finally, he casts it into the depths of the sea. At the end, when the sea would part and God would bring his people through on dry ground, it says in even the songs that were sung by Miriam and others in Exodus, it says that God would cast the rider and the, and the chariot into the sea. And you know, on the first day of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, in the afternoon, there's actually a prayer that to this day, that the Jewish people still do. And they, what they do is they go and they find a body of water. It could be a lake, it could be a river, it could be any body. And they stand at that water and the first prayer that's to be given for the Jewish New Year is this one. It's to be, how do we cast our sins into the water? And one of the most beautiful things about what God is saying here, it's not us, it's not on our shoulders or in our strength to take it off and think about it, lift it off and cast it into the water. God does the casting. 
he casts it. He throws it off. He is the one that puts it into the depths of the sea. That this prayer would be sung over us, what we just sang a minute ago. What is God's song over us? Is it, you didn't do enough. What is the tape you play? Is it, I will never get there. How do you measure God's love for you? He's telling you what his love is. And guess how he describes it? And I love this in verse 18. He says, he does not retain his anger forever. He delights in what? What does God delight in? I'll tell you what. When, we bring, when I bring donuts home in the morning, and my boy, this is one of my favorite things, and they get donuts in the morning, particularly my boys, and they start eating them, and they start dancing, like, and they start moving, and they're not saying anything, they're just eating, they're just like doing this. What do you think they're delighting in? I mean, they are delighting in that donut. They're not just sitting down, they're eating, they're just, they're grooving. I mean, it moves them. What do you think God delights in? I want to stop there before I finish that verse because I think, and I want to push in on us for a second, because I think often we fill that blank with something besides his steadfast love. We fill it with God delights when I have everything together. God delights when I get all my tasks done. God delights when I can come to church and my confessions are little. God delights when I do well in my work or my school. God delights when everything is harmonious in my relationships. God delights in X, Y, Z. When I, what would you say? God delights in steadfast love, period. And do you know what that means? It means he delights in loving you. He loves you because you're his. We are starting baseball, and I'm a, it's one of my favorite things. I'm a coach for our eight, seven, eight-year-olds. And one of my favorite things, and it's already started, where I'll pitch to them, and they're at the plate, and they'll turn whether they hit something or not, or when they get to the plate, and they'll turn. And even in practice, they'll look into the audience and find their parent's face. And you know what's sweet about that? They're looking into the audience to say, did you see what I did? Like, am I really doing this? You know, it's like, yeah, you're really doing this. But you know what the parents are really doing? They're giving them a face saying, no matter what you do at that plate, you're mine. I love you because you're mine. And that deep, profound assurance of that connection is one of the sweetest things for me coaching because I get to almost watch a reality of what we really long for and we still do. that every time we wake up, we are going to the plate again. And we are looking for the face that is going to tell us how loved we are. This passage doesn't end 
with he delights in you doing better or that you got your stuff together. It delights in his steadfast love. And he notice, he doesn't just say love like it's an emotion thrown out. He says steadfast love. And you know what steadfast love means? It never changes. It means it never wears out. Never. You are always kept. You're always known. You're always cherished. He, God doesn't need a workshop to remember his love for you. God doesn't have to go get some coaching to say, okay, let me get this back to normal. He delights. His pleasure is in a long relationship of love with you. And that's what gets to the profound depths of us. So that when we look to anything else, that we that we, we wake up and we get to that plate and we look for the face to tell us over and over and over, what, what's gonna have me today? What holds me? How am I loved today? This is why God's formula is the same over and over and over. This is why every time you hear the good news that's called the gospel over and over, every time you come to the table to take here, it is over and over the same because he loves us. And he finishes the very last verse, verse 20, by saying the whole book, by saying you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you sworn to our fathers from the days of old. These are the names of the patriarchs of the Old Testament that would be pylons of God's faithful love both personally and generationally. Who is like God? who pardons iniquity, passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, that is us, he does not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. And you know what's so amazing in the New Testament? Peter, who wrote a couple letters, Peter, you may have heard that name. We're actually gonna talk about Peter on Easter and then look at this book, 1 Peter, as our next um, series. Peter finishes, he begins his book this way, sorry, in 1 Peter 1, listen to what he says. 1 Peter 1.10, he says, concerning this salvation, <clears throat> the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Listen to this verse. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, to you the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. Do you realize what Micah is saying is that his Work, even finishing his book, he did not even get to see what we do. That at this table, you actually get to taste God's true delight. And it is an aggressive table towards sin, iniquity, transgression. It is very aggressive. If you think about it, it's body and blood. It addresses all of those things, transgressions, iniquities, sins, 
practically. You can't come up here and smell this table. You have to take it, right? Because when you take it, you realize God is actually active against that because you know why he's active? He's active in how he delights in you. And his steadfast love lasts forever. You get to taste his pure, true delight that no matter what you bring up to this table, it doesn't change his delight. His love is steadfast. And I want to encourage you, and I just want to say this very bluntly. If you're here today, and maybe what I've said is like, oh, that's kind, that's sweet, that's great character, but I don't know if, I still am wondering, I wouldn't come and just take this table because everyone else is. But what I want to tell you is actually taste. Come to God and taste and see that he is good. And then you can come and taste and know that he, his delight is true. It's real. Otherwise, why would he send his true delight, Jesus, to become the focus of all of our iniquity, transgression, and sin so that we might have the full weight of his delight both now and forevermore? And guess what? One day, this won't be just a taste. We will live in pure delight of the meal that is ours and God forever. Amen? Amen to that. Let's stand together.